Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits statewide to strengthen Maine communities through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org. Whatever that monster was, sounds like it ate Matt there at the end of that promo. It is just a few minutes before 10 o'clock. You are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host Ron Beard is up next. Just a minute here as we open our program, and I look for my um, normal promo. And don't seem to have it with us this morning. But in any case, you're tuned to Talk of the Towns, and um, our, our topic this morning is looking at Sustainable Harvest International. And we're glad to have um, an old friend and, and kind of colleague in this work. Florence Reed is with us. She's the head of Sustainable Harvest International. She's joined by Sarah Clemens, who's um, a staff member and working on a special event coming up a little later um, in, a, in about a week or so. So we'll talk with both of them about uh, the work of Sustainable Harvest International. Um, later on, we'll open up our phone lines and you can participate as well. Uh, Flo, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started and, and, and um, kind of thought about uh, Sustainable Harvest International. You were a Peace Corps volunteer. That, I assume, had something to do with your well, work now. Well, yes, that, that certainly had a lot to do uh, with my work now. I, mean, I think it's a path I've actually been on since I was a young child with uh, in the, the Peace Corps being probably the biggest, most concrete step uh, towards the work that I'm doing now because as a Peace Corps volunteer in a rural community in Panama, I was able to see firsthand uh, a lot of what I'd studied in college about the loss of the rainforests, and I saw how farmers every year were burning more of the forest in order to grow their crops. But what really came home to me during my years as a Peace Corps volunteer was the fact that the farmers did not want to be burning down more of the forest every year. It was simply the only way that they knew how to feed their families. Um, And what they wanted were sustainable farming practices that would allow them to produce more and grow on the same land near their homes every year without having to constantly be cutting down and, and burning more of the forest. And, and how, did, how did that um, happen? Because they, at one point, um, I, I assume there was a sustainable practice. What, what yeah. changed in their lives and, and the, their economy? Right. Well, uh, I don't know if it's been a change in our generation, in, in our lifetimes, but I, I think that what changed was that slash-and-burn farming develop, was developed by a, a small indigenous population, and so they were able to clear and burn an area of forest to grow there for a year or two and then leave that area surrounded by the forest to recuperate for 50 or 100 years before they would come back to to cut it down and burn it again. And I think that was probably a very sustainable way of doing things, especially augmented by hunting and gathering in the surrounding Mm. forest. And what's changed over the the years, over the generations, is that the population has grown. The the best land has been uh, taken up in, in great part by wealthy landowners who own large areas of land. And the people who work with us are pushed onto hillsides and uh, onto more marginal land and and smaller uh, pieces of land. And so now the slash and burn farming is something that they uh, practice in in a way where they go back after maybe five or six years and the land has not been surrounded by forest, it's been surrounded by other burned land Mm -hmm. and it never is able to, to fully 
recuperate. And so now each time they repeat the cycle, more of the soil is washed away. And then little by little, this lush tropical rainforest that produces an incredible abundance of life is reduced to almost a desert situation after the cycle is, is repeated uh, a number of times on this shorter rotation. Mm. And that's when the, the families are left uh, with the difficult situation of either having to pick up, move somewhere else where there's virgin forest um, to start the process over again there, or move to the city to try to look for work. And, and with a third grade education, the work opportunities are usually pretty dismal and, and living situations are pretty dismal. And the other option they see might be to come up here to the U.S., um, probably illegally, to, to try mm. to find work and, and send money home. But there's all sorts of risks uh, involved with that, and, and the families are separated for often years at a time, which is uh, not a happy situation for anybody. Mm. And so what what were the seeds of sustainable – those were the seeds, your observation. But what led you, after your Peace Corps experience, to decide that you wanted to do something more than – than, than the Peace Corps volunteer work? Well, uh, after my work as a Peace Corps volunteer, I really wanted to go and work for an organization that was focused on providing long-term technical assistance to the farmers mm. to allow them to transition to the sustainable farming practices that they wanted. And uh, I took a few lessons away from my Peace Corps experience. Uh, one was that you can't expect people to make that kind of transition to, to the way they feed themselves over uh, the course of a few days or a few weeks or a few months that really it has to be several years mm. for them to get comfortable using new practices and, and feel like they can continue feeding their families and, and enjoy a better life with the sustainable practices. So the importance of the long-term nature of the work was uh, one of the key lessons I took away. And uh, so, somewhat ironically, maybe the other uh, key lesson I took away is that local people are the most effective uh, change agents. Uh, and I think the Peace Corps is wonderful, and I'm so grateful that I had the experience of being a Peace Corps volunteer and uh, um, I, I think that I, I know I gained a lot from the experience, and, and I think that the people working with me uh, you know, gained as well. But for actually getting the work done on the ground, uh, on the farms, uh, there's, there's no uh, better way than by hiring local people mm. to be the trainers. And we, we talked, um, the last time you were on Talk of the Towns, um, we talked about the extension model that I come from. Right, um, yes. The, the notion that, um, yes, you may need someone who um, trains, but the local person, and we hope we're going to be able to talk with one of those folks, right. both the trainer, the yep. person who kind of um, supports someone over that long period of time, but then the, the person who um, makes some changes and adapts, and mm -hmm. then their neighbors learn from that process. Right, right? yeah, right. exactly. So uh, when I came out of Peace Corps, I was looking to work for an organization that embodied these uh, ideals that, uh, that I had uh, developed seeing uh, life in rural Panama, and I was really shocked to find there was no such organization in existence. And so I uh, took what job I could find in the nonprofit sector. I worked for an organization that had a totally different mission from what I was interested in, a, a good one, but not um, where my passion was. But I learned a lot about how an effective and efficient nonprofit organization operates. I learned a lot about fundraising, which is important if you're going to start a new nonprofit organization. And then from there, I went to a job with another nonprofit that had a mission much closer to what I wanted to be doing, but was really horribly run and uh, almost a complete sham. <laughs> and um, uh, being bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, recently out of the Peace Corps, uh, idealistic young woman, I thought I could maybe turn things around there, mm -hmm. which 
um, I wasn't really able to do, but I learned a lot about what not to do mm-hmm. <laughs> with a nonprofit organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually, it actually, uh, when I tried to get a program started and uh, and had the rug pulled out from under me with that organization, that finally gave me the final push uh, to start Sustainable Harvest. And so when uh, the director of that organization told me we won't send any more funding down to Honduras to the people who you've uh, hired and who, uh, who are expecting to be working with the families there. I said, okay, it's now or never if I'm going to start a new <clears throat> nonprofit. And uh, I had no money, so it seemed uh, not terribly realistic. And I said, well, I'll give myself one day and see if I can figure out how to start a new nonprofit. And one I, day? One day. That's what I gave myself. I said, if I can't figure it out in, in one day, I really just need to get a real job and, and pay the bills and uh, get back to reality. And uh, during that one day, I got an email from a man in Switzerland who I'd met on my last trip to Central America. And he asked what was happening, and I told him. And he said, well, open a new bank account, and I'll wire you some money tomorrow to start your new nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And he was a young guy like me. I didn't think people my age had any money, but he got $6,000 to me the next day, and that was enough. Mm. I sent half of it to Honduras. Um, It kept the first two guys in Honduras going for the first few months and kept me going for the first few months here, printing up letterhead and pulling together a board of directors and uh, getting incorporated and all that stuff. (laughs) And and was that in Maine that you you set Uh, No, that was New Hampshire. Hampshire. Um, uh, The first office was the spare bedroom at my parents' house Mm -hmm. uh, because the rent was free. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, so we worked out of there for the first year or so and, and then rented an office in Portsmouth for several years before we moved to Maine. Mm. Well, remind us about the, the, the mission. Um, you talked about uh, some of the things that you think are important, that, that local contact, the local, yep. local learning, and the long-term nature mm-hmm. of this work. Um, tell us a little bit more about the, the mission. Um, well, the mission is to provide the, the farming families with the training and tools that they need to preserve the tropical forests and raise their standard of living at, mm. at the same time. So the two always go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And the way we do that, as we've sort of alluded to already, is that we hire local field trainers in the countries where we work. Um, each one of the field trainers works with about 25 families who have asked to work with us. And they visit those families every week or two for about five years and take mm-hmm. them through our five-phase program, uh, first to learn how to use sustainable organic practices to increase the production of their traditional staple crops. Once they're comfortable doing that, we help them add in new crops so they can produce a more balanced diet for themselves and um, have a a good diet as as a basis for a good standard of living. Mm -hmm. Um, And then lastly, uh, if they are also interested in adding more crops uh, and some business skills to improve their cash income, we help them with that piece before the families graduate from the program and then are able to continue on their own as self-sufficient stewards of the environment and people who are able to be examples for their neighbors and and help their neighbors achieve the Mm -hmm. same success that they've achieved. When when we talk about the crops that they start with, what are, what are they growing for themselves when, when you first encounter them, perhaps? Well, in Central America, the traditional staple crops are corn uh, is uh, probably the most important one. Um, most of the countries where we work, tortilla is the basis for the diet. Mm-hmm. Uh, rice is another important crop in many of the countries. Uh, beans is a, a primary source uh, of protein. Most of the families have yard chickens. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them grow cassava, that, that tuber, mm-hmm. which is sort of like potato type mm-hmm. crop and that that's usually about it mm-hmm. um, when we start working 
with the mm-hmm. families. And then how would you help them expand that um, for a better diet? Okay, well, once uh, f- first we help them grow more of those right. crops so right. they have enough of those year-round. Um, and then we help them to go beyond that with vegetable gardens so they can grow things like carrots, cabbage, lettuce, tomatoes, radishes, peppers, a, mm. a whole variety of garden vegetables. Uh, sometimes we help them with fish ponds so that it's another source of protein. Uh, we often help them with chicken coops so that the chickens don't get eaten by predators. Um, and so the families have more eggs and, and, and chicken for more protein in their diet. And we help them with fruit trees uh, as another way to get more uh, vitamins and mm. more nutritious diet. Mm. And you, know, you, you mentioned the earlier pattern of, of uh, slash and burn, creating a space to grow things. Um, that's less um, uh, likely to happen because of land use <coughs> patterns and, and ownership and so on. So you're basically helping them with smaller plots, but but reinvesting into the into the soil. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So uh, once the families have been working with us for a little while, uh, w- when they start working with us, they take land that has already been cleared, uh, maybe multiple times, and we teach them how to build up the soil on that land by doing things like planting cover crops, using compost, doing crop rotation, putting in a erosion barriers on the hillsides so the mm-hmm. soil doesn't wash down the hillsides. Mm-hmm. And that allows them to grow on that same uh, already cleared piece of land year after year after year in, instead of each year having to clear more of the forest and burn it. And then, in fact, we also help them to put trees back onto the land. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the families work with us on planting what we call multi-story plantations so that you'll have a, a shrub crop such as coffee in the highlands or cacao for chocolate um, in, in the lowlands and, and have those growing in the shade of hardwood trees would be the top story, things like rosewood and mahogany, uh, maybe some faster growing trees that fix nitrogen and improve the overall productivity of the soil growing in between. On the ground, you might have things like ginger that grow well in this forest type environment. Bananas would be another example. Growing up the trees, you can have things like vanilla vines, you can have orchids growing on the trees. Um, and in addition to the hardwood trees, you can have fruit trees, you can have spice trees. So you get a great diversity which for the farmers like diversifying his stock portfolio and provides a, a lot of economic stability and it also provides ecological stability at the same mm. time because these plantations um, are almost um, the same as a natural uh, forest. They provide habitat for wildlife, they preserve the watersheds, they keep the soils in place, they stabilize the climate, they produce oxygen. Um, mm. So it's, it's, a, it's a win-win situation uh, all around. And it sounds like you're applying science to um, uh, this process. I mean, th- these are scientific principles that you're applying in terms of how to take care of a p- piece of land and, and make it productive. Right. Uh, I, I hope that all of the work that we do is, is based on ecology, mm-hmm. um, as I feel like um, uh, the in, in the natural world is uh, works very well, <laughs> and that when we get too far away from it, that that's where we run into problems um, mm-hmm. as humans, and so that we can achieve our best results by looking at how nature operates and um, amplifying that and uh, t- and t- taking advantage of uh, the, the way nature uh, mm. operates very well already. Mm. And how about the, the economy? Um, that probably has changed somewhat in terms of, of uh, um, the, the kind of the global economy that we live in and, and there, um, the, those farmers' ability to exist in that world. Um, <laughs> right. Well, certainly... Uh, 
the, the farmers have seen in, in the global economy the, the prices of food going way up, um, the, the prices of petroleum products, including chemical fertilizers, going way up. And so by becoming self-sufficient and being able to produce their own food, that uh, guarantees them that their, their children won't starve because they can't afford to buy the higher-priced food. Uh, and then the same the cost of the fertilizers going up, and there's um, many reasons why we uh, promote organic practices instead of chemical fertilizers and, and chemical pesticides. But one of the benefits the families see right away is that the money that they save. Um, one of the farmers that I visited in Honduras recently told me that he um, used to spend uh, about $40 a month on chemical fertilizers. Now he's producing about 7,000 pounds of compost a year, um, and that has replaced the chemical fertilizers. It's getting him better results. And the money that he saves is sending his children to high school. And mm. he had not thought they could afford to send their children to high school, um, which is beyond the reach of many of the families working with us in Central America. But mm. the compost is sending the kids to, to school. We mentioned Panama and, and now Honduras. Uh, what are the other countries in which you're working? Uh, in addition to Panama and Honduras, we're also working in Belize and Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. And what what made you choose those places? Um, was that, you, you said your Peace Corps experience was mm -hmm. Panama, but what, right. what, what made you choose those places? Well, in, in all honesty, it was really sort of happenstance. Um, as I said, I'd been working with another organization prior trying to get some programs going for them and through them uh, I had ended up in those four countries and uh, tried to get some programs going through them and when that didn't work out the people who had been working with me and looking to me to bring this type of program to their communities uh, I, I went back to those people and said well I'm trying to get a new organization started and as soon as I have the resources I'll come back and, and mm -hmm. try to get the, the work going again uh, here in your country and so, so those were the first uh, four countries and uh, we've been building up the work there over the past 15 mm -hmm. years now. And all of them would be similar in terms of, of the, the nature of the population and the nature of the ecology that you're working? Any differences among those countries? Uh, there are definitely differences. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the basics uh, are, are the same, but there certainly are uh, differences. Where we work in Belize, Belize is a, a former English colony until recently, so English is the official language, but we work mostly with indigenous people, um, Kekchi and Mopan Maya, so it's, it's a different culture, um, different language, uh, and Belize is more forested still than the other countries where we work, so, so that's one difference. Um, it's on the Caribbean coast. The Caribbean coast is rainier than the Pacific coast in Central America, uh, so that's, that's another difference. And uh, each country is somewhat different. Uh, Belize, Honduras, and Nicaragua. Uh, tortillas are the basis for the diet. And in, in Panama, it's rice. So, so there are, so that's there the, are other the differences. The importance of having that local uh, advisor um, yes. in, in, the, in the community. Right. I'll just listen, uh, remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're talking with uh, Florence Reed, who is the uh, Executive Director of Sustainable Harvest International. And a little later, we'll open up our phone lines for you to participate in this conversation. Um, now, I think we'll try to go to uh, Panama, and we have uh, Diomedes there. Um, Flo, you'll have to introduce him and translate for us. No, he's not there. Oh, you're going to wait for a little bit, and we're going to try them in a, in a few minutes? Okay. Well, our engineer will let us know when that's, when that's possible. Um, 
one of the things that you've um, looked, you're celebrating your 15th year. You've had some peaks and valleys, I imagine, in, in this process, um, starting with that one day. You gave yourself a day. That sounds like a peak to me. <laughs> what were some when of the, the money came through, that was a peak. Right. What were some of the challenges that you faced as, as an organization over 15 years? Uh, there have certainly been min, many uh, challenges uh, over the years. Uh, you know, in the, the beginning, we still had such limited resources that we were using bicycles and public transportation and and dugout canoes and going on foot to mm. to get to the communities, which was not the most efficient way to mm-hmm. uh, to reach the the different families. And little by little, we've built it up. We got our first motorcycle, and that that was a step forward. Though I still remember riding on the back of the motorcycle with our first field trainers and having to stop when there was a pig relieving himself in the road in front of us and wait for <laughs> him to move on his way. And uh, then we got to the point where we could buy our first secondhand pickup truck. And I remember uh, how exciting that was that we'd be able to uh, more easily carry tools and things mm. out to the communities. But even that had its challenges buying a, a secondhand pickup truck. We were driving along, noticing a little a few little things. And I said, well, you know, so long as uh, the wheels stay on, I'm going to be happy. And uh, believe it or not, literally within about a minute or two of that, the truck came crashing down and I saw one of the tires go rolling down the dirt road in front of us. (laughs) It sounds like Maine, Flo. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, one of the reasons that I think I have moved to Maine and I like Maine is I do think there are some similarities in the Mm. culture um, Mm. between Maine and um, Central America. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the reasons that uh, I, I choose to to be in Maine. Um, so this is an international organization, but based in Maine. Um, you've grown your budget to um, a little over 1.5 million at yep, this point. Right. Um, how has that support come? How have you kind of gathered people to your cause? And uh, Maine doesn't seem like a logical place from which to <laughs> operate a, an organization that's that's focused on um, Central America. Tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah. Well, I, I guess appropriately, uh, the growth of the organization has been very organic, mm-hmm. and I think that most of it has really happened through word of mouth, uh, through people hearing about our work on radio programs like this one. Um, I do a lot of speaking engagements. Uh, people tell their friends uh, about SHI, our, our board of directors and other volunteers put a lot of effort into making more people aware of the work. And, and so it's spread uh, to a great extent through that sort of grapevine. And, and, and you certainly are using, making good use of the internet and, and your your Facebook kind of pages, those kinds of things. That's a, that's a change in the last... 20 years. Right, definitely. Right, and right. You know, we've had the uh, good fortune to um, have uh, Renee, who worked at WERU at one time, who uh, has been our communications director in recent years, did a tremendous job building uh, that up um, and actually was promoted recently to be our acting director and has mm. taken over the full management of the organization so I can focus more on the long-term vision and the outreach and, and the fundraising pieces uh, to, together with Sarah, who's a wonderful addition and will uh, be helping to build up our fundraising um, work both uh, for looking for more grants and uh, looking for more individuals interested in supporting our work. Mm. And so with that, um, there's... there's um a, a desire or a need to to raise funds every year. Are there some kind of 
um, ongoing sources of support besides the, the annual drive that you m- must have to, to do? Well, most of our support comes from individual donors, mm-hmm. um, and thankfully uh, most of them, once they uh, find out about our work and we continue to update them on the progress being made, both for preserving the environment and for helping the families, uh, most want to continue supporting mm-hmm. and uh, are, are very dedicated uh, to continuing their support for the organization. So we're lucky in that uh, regard. And we've had a small amount of support from some foundations and businesses as well. Um, and some of them uh, also uh, stick with us year after year, though, though some of them change their focus uh, from time to time. So it's not quite as steady mm. um, a, a source mm. of support. And we have to always be looking uh, f- for new, for new um, individuals and uh, new businesses, new foundations. Mm. Um, and going forward, we're looking into um, other uh, possible funding sources that we haven't tapped into uh, before, uh, government funding, intergovernmental funding, maybe some more earned income. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're trying to keep all the options open to uh, try to raise uh, as many resources as possible to reach as many families as possible. We've mm-hmm. probably helped about 10,000 people um, uh, so far, but there are about 2 billion rural poor in the world. <laughs> so uh, I'm always thinking about how, how do we get from the 10,000 closer to the 2 billion. <laughs> well, that's great. That's great. Uh, remind our listeners that you're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're talking with Flo Reed of Sustainable Harvest International this morning. And uh, right now we do have um, some of her, um, uh, uh, both a farmer from Panama, uh, Dimitrio, and Diomedes, um, who is a field trainer. So, Flo, why don't you introduce them? And, no, we just have one, okay? We just have Diomedes? Okay. I, um, I will have to, we're getting a signal from our, our engineer. I thought we had um, one of those folks on the line. And uh, maybe we don't. So we'll uh, continue. Um, the, the notion of, of uh, um, moving kind of beyond also relates to local government. Um, what's been the response of kind of governments in Panama and, and uh, your, your associations there? Do you have a sense um, of, of how people are responding? Yeah, we've been able to work with the local governments uh, on the, to a limited degree and, and really on the, the more local level. Uh, so maybe the local branch of the the Ministry of Agriculture and of Natural Resources will collaborate um, with us. Uh, on a larger scale, uh, we, we haven't found a lot of support from um, the local governments. Uh, it does not seem like they have a lot of interest in uh, the poorest people mm. uh, in their countries who are, who are the people that, that we work with. Um, and uh, since none of our money ends up in the pockets of uh, anybody in the local government, that I think makes them less interested in us mm. as well. All of our uh, support goes directly to the communities and, and to the, the field trainers and people working. But so the far, they're not standing in your in your way. No, no, that's and good. and that's definitely I think a step in the right direction. <laughs> I know uh, the first years when I was working in Honduras, I was surprised by the number of people who said, you know, Florencia, if you'd been doing this work back in the 1980s, you would have been killed by now. Mm. Um, and I've never felt that my life was in danger, except maybe in some of the taxi cabs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so I you know, feel like benign neglect is definitely a step in the right direction. <laughs> we do have Demetrio on on the line, so why don't you introduce Demetrio and then. Um, I'll ask some questions and you can translate. 
So okay. tell us a little bit about Demetrio. Okay, well, uh, Demetrio um, is one of the farmers working with us in Panama. He's been uh, working with us for several years now and has um, really done an amazing job on his farm, uh, building it up, diversifying the crops. And if you see pictures of it, um, it's just one of the most beautiful farms that um, that you could imagine. And, and he works uh, with one of our field tra- trainers in Panama de Omedes, who's been working with him uh, for several years. And in fact, I think uh, now they've been using Demetrio's farm as uh, a demonstration to bring other people there to, to see just how successful uh, a farmer uh, living in, in a remote community in Panama can be. Great. Buenos dias, Demetrio. Hello? Uh, Demetrio? Hola, ¿estás ahí? Sí, bueno, sí. Ah, buenos días, qué gusto escucharle. ¿Qué tal? Ajá, eh, le saluda Demetrio Martínez, eh, de, miembro de familia asistida de la organización Cotecha, Sostenible Internacional Panamá. Uh, he, he sends his greetings uh, to us Good. as one of the families working with Sustainable Harvest uh, Panama. If you could ask him to, to paint a picture of his community, tell us what we would see if we were walking down the street. Okay, uh, Demetrio, puedes uh, decirnos un poco sobre su comunidad? ¿Cómo es la comunidad? Uh, ¿Qué vemos si caminamos uh, por la comunidad? Um, ¿Usted vive en, en Tranquilla? En Membrillo. Ah, Membrillo, perdón. Entonces, uh, uh, ¿puede explicar cómo es la comunidad de Membrillo? Bien, la comunidad donde vivo pues, en, es muy... Eh, Tiene sus ganas características muy, muy bonitas. It's very beautiful. Eh, yo estoy ubicado... Yo voy a traducir poco a poco <laughs> para no olvidar sí, nada. Bien, gracias. <laughs> ok, sigue. Eh, eh, estoy ubicado en un área un poco... Eh, no, no cerca a la calle principal. It's, it's far from the main road. Eh, si, es, si es accesible a llegar, eh, el trayecto a pie... It's about 30 minutes on foot. Mm. Mm. And could you ask him a little la, bit? Ask him a little bit. Carac- ca- Dale. Las características pues son eh, quebradas, terrenos quebrados, accidental. Uh, it's hilly land. Um, tiene sus temporadas de invierno y verano también. Uh, it has a rainy season and a dry season. They have healthy air, vegetation, culture. Enriqueciéndonos con todos los proyectos que ahora estamos realizando a través de la capacitación que recibimos de la organización. And we're developing new projects with the help of the Sustainable Harvest Program. Mm. If you could ask him what um, are the, the things that he's learned most uh, from Sustainable Harvest International. Um, Dimitrio, ¿puede decirnos algo sobre qué, qué ha aprendido uh, con el programa de cosecha? Sostenible. ¿Qué ha sido uh, lo más importante que ha aprendido con nuestro programa? Muy bien valioso el aporte de la organización. It's been very valuable, the support from the organization. 
sobre todo eh, en mi área espiritual, de valorarme y valorar todo lo que me rodea en la naturaleza. Uh, on a spiritual level, I've learned to really appreciate uh, everything around me in nature. Ahora poder utilizar los recursos naturales y, y transformarlos en, en mejor beneficio para mí y para mi familia. I've learned how to use all the natural resources around me for, for my benefit and for the benefit of my family. Con este orgullo, este amor lo hago con dedicación para que mi comunidad and with, with pride and with love, I do all of this for my community. Mi país y el planeta, pues, y todos los que han aportado a esta organización se sientan que estamos haciendo un trabajo en, en apoyarles o reconocerles por esa buena intención. And I, I do also do this for my, for my country and, and for the planet and for all of the people who have supported this work, helping us do this for everybody's benefit. Mm. And maybe you could ask him also, um, he has been one of the early um, families that's worked with Sustainable Harvest International in, in this community. What has been the reaction of others in his community? How has he helped them learn? Tenemos la idea, Demetrio, de que usted era uno de los primeros para trabajar con cosecha en su comunidad. Y nos gustaría saber... ¿Qué han dicho los vecinos y otras personas en la comunidad si han visto lo que está haciendo? ¿Qué piensan ellos de los resultados de su trabajo con cosecha? Bueno, muchos me han dado el agradecimiento por los logros que he adquirido. Otros me han hecho comentarios no saludables, pero que son de beneficio para poder mejorar algunas desventajas que hayamos adquirido en el programa de inicial some of them have expressed gratitude for what they've been able to uh, to learn and uh, you know, from seeing his work and uh, others uh, feel like it's not the the way to go mm. Mm. and as a demonstration um, what is he demonstrating as a demonstration farm okay, um, y uh, su finca, uh, yo entiendo que su finca sirve como una demostración, un ejemplo uh, para otros productores. Entonces, ¿qué ven ellos uh, en su finca y, y qué pueden aprender ellos viendo su finca? Sí, es un, bueno, eh, una autoevaluación personal que se hace. Eh, si lo logré yo, ¿por qué no lo, han, lo, lo pueden lograr ellos? Viendo a mi pro las propias características iguales. So he, uh, one of the things he realizes is that they can learn from his farm because his land is the same uh, as, as their land. Mm -hmm. So turning to the future, what are his hopes? What, what would he like to be doing in five years? ¿Y qué espera para usted y para su familia durante los cinco años que vienen? ¿Qué más quiere lograr? Eh, bueno, eh, establecer mi, mi, mi programa que sea sostenible donde pueda estar en el área y no emi volver a emigrar a otros puntos donde se me hace más difícil la, eh, todo lo que concierne a mi responsabilidad que tengo. He wants to continue to be successful uh, on his own farm uh, so that he'll, he will never have to go somewhere else uh, to look for a different way to sustain himself and his family. And Flo tells me um, that you're 
very concerned about people leaving to go to the city. That's what you'd like to prevent that, or at least give them the option to stay locally. Um, hemos leído otro entrevista uh, con usted, como ya es muy famoso <laughs> productor, um, y me llamé la atención de que estaba uh, hablando uh, de, de que mucha gente están saliendo de las comunidades rurales. Um, uh, I'm sorry, what was the question? I... How, how to prevent oh, you know, people and, going through oh, the city. Oh, entonces, um, si tenemos la idea de que usted piensa que es más saludable vivir en las comunidades rurales, y entonces nos gustaría saber uh, qué piensa que sería la mejor manera para, para ayudar a la gente a quedarse Uh, en, en las comunidades rurales. Sí, muy bien. Eh, eh, para muestra esto, pues, eh, lo hice de manera personal. Yo renuncié a donde estaba para ingresar a una, a una empresa eh, transnacional donde trabajaba para dedicarme al área de producción eh, de, de orgánica y también eh, es muy preocupado por el tema ambiental en, en beneficio de todos. He personally uh, quit his job working for a transnational corporation in order to move back to his community and, and dedicate himself to organic agriculture and, and taking care of the environment. Mm. Mm. Well, tell him that my heart is full listening to his words, <laughs> and I'm so glad that he can participate in today's radio show, and good luck. Tenemos los corazones llenos de haber escuchado sus palabras, y estamos muy agradecidos por lo que está realizando en, en Panamá y por haber tomado la, el tiempo para conversar con nosotros. Muchas gracias, Ajá. Dimitrio. Gracias. Gracias a ustedes por esta oportunidad. He says thank you for this opportunity. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Good. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're talking with um, Flo Reed of Sustainable Harvest International, and we've just um, heard from Demetrio, a farmer in Panama who has taken advantage of uh, the work of Sustainable Harvest International. Um, Demetrio is, is, uh, is coached and supported by a field trainer. That's the model. Um, uh, tell me about how you pick and choose the field trainers. Uh, well, to a great extent, it's the same way that we would hire somebody here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. We advertise in the newspapers, we collect resumes, we do interviews. Um, and, and when I say we, that, that would now be our local country directors um, and local staff who are, are doing this. Um, uh, sometimes if, if they want to with some support from, from the U.S. staff, but it, it's really uh, the local directors that, that are running their own Uh, programs now. What would you say you're looking for? And, and probably some knowledge, but what's, what's the, the characteristic of someone who's right. a good field trainer? Well, most of the people um, who we hire to be field trainers uh, come from a rural background, from a farming background. Most of them have a degree in agriculture, uh, maybe something equivalent to an associate's degree for the most part. And many of them have had experience working for other nonprofit organizations doing community development work. Mm -hmm. And um, so we, we bring that together and then provide them with additional training, uh, especially on the sustainable organic uh, practices. And, and we provide them with ongoing opportunities to keep learning uh, so uh, they can keep sharing that with the farmers, uh, as well as sharing what, what they learn from the farmers. <laughs> Great.
Well, we're, we're, this is a call-in program. We would welcome your calls. If you've got questions or comments for our guests um, from Sustainable Harvest International, give us a call at one 866 625-9378 or locally at 469-0500. I uh, do believe we have our first call. Uh, go ahead with your question or comment, please. Tell us your name and, and where you're calling from as well. Um, this is Beatty in Camden, and uh, I've been following what uh, you've been doing for quite a while, and I think it's really right on. Um, one thing I was particularly interested in from newsletters was I think it's called Bocacci. It's a sort of composting method where you take soil and impregnate it with, you take the soil from around the plants you want to transplant and you kind of grow it uh, into a compost that you can then add when you, when you uh, transplant. And people were doing this with trees in desert hillsides. And I remember reading about that in one of your newsletters. I don't remember if that was the name for it, but um, are you still doing that? Are people, is that working? Can you comment on that? Uh, sure. Well, thanks. Um, uh, thanks for following our work, and uh, glad it's, that you're the find, you find the newsletters interesting. It's great. They're uh, great. Oh, good. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and we, we do still work with Bokashi. Uh, we work with a variety of ways that the farmers can improve their soils, and we offer them sort of a menu of the many techniques and teach them as many as they would like to learn. And Bokashi is one of them. Uh, my understanding of Bokashi is that it's basically a fermented compost where you uh, use yeast, I believe it is, and uh, some sort of sugar, um, molasses, sugar cane type uh, product, which creates a fermentation process to, to make this particular type of compost. And it, it may incorporate in uh, local soil as well. I know that the local soil is used for um, creating, um, I believe it's called the effective microorganisms, which are the microorganisms that already exist in in the soil. And um, so rather than killing them with chemicals, as is um, uh, done in, in conventional agriculture, or, or what one of my board members says I should call toxic death agriculture, um, <laughs> uh, instead of killing those uh, microorganisms in the soil, the, uh, w- we teach the farmers how to reproduce them and encourage them and, and use them uh, in this eff- effective microorganism mixture, which is then a- applied to the plants. And that may be incorporated in with the Bokashi um, as well. I'm afraid I'm not certain about that. Well, what, what, one of the things I remember, and it may be, I may be putting two techniques together, was that uh, the plants you wanted to transplant, um, in the, you found them in the wild and, and got some of the microorganisms that were working with their roots, you know, some of the uh, fungal things especially, yeah. and got that into the Bokashi. And then when you did, you took plugs of this stuff with a plant in it and put it into the hillside, the desert hillside, it, and it both sustained the particular tree and um, migrated into the soil around and so made it more uh, friendly to future planting. Right, yeah, that, that's right. And, and when they, they collect the, this soil for this, I, I believe they go into uh, whatever native forest is, is remaining yeah. in the area yeah. To, yeah. to get that, that healthy, natural yeah. Uh, soil and, and utilize that. So, so again, le- learning from nature and and yeah. uh, taking advantage of all that that nature has to offer, and instead of uh, trying to destroy it and <laughs> replace right. it with something else. 
Yeah. Great. Thanks so much anyway, for that. Thank you. Thanks so thank much you. for that call. I think we have another caller. Go ahead with your question or comment. Give us your first name and where you're calling from, please. This is Jack calling from Mount Desert. Hi, Jack. Hi, Ron. Hi, Jack. It's one of Hello. our stalwart volunteers and yes. supporters. Uh, I, I hope Flo can uh, tell the listeners the opportunity that we all have at the end of the year during the holiday season to send real practical support to SHI participants in Central America and at the same time honor loved ones and family members. Yeah. Thanks, Jack. That's just the kind of question we love <laughs> to, to get. Uh, you're talking about our, 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 our gifts of hope, we yes. call them. Yes. Uh, and we put out a, a catalog towards the end of each year of uh, these, these gifts of hope. And so this is a way that you can uh, make a donation to support tree planting, to support planting a chocolate forest, to uh, support beekeeping, to support uh, uh, a women's group. We have a variety of these different pieces of our work. And um, you can make a donation in the name of somebody else for something, uh, one of these particular projects. And then we will send your uh, gift recipient a card with with a photo on it of the work saying that a chocolate forest is being planted in their mm. name or that a wood-conserving stove is being built in their name. And so it's it's a really nice way to uh, honor somebody around the holidays or for another special occasion and in, in a way that's also supporting the families in Central America and, and supporting the planet. And Jack, just as, your, as a key board member, uh, volunteer, what impresses you most about uh, Sustainable Harvest International? Uh, um, m- many things. There is the stellar example of Flo, who it's an honor to know. Uh, SHI has been singled out uh, as an organization uh, among nonprofits that gets a very substantial proportion of the funds that they realize into direct practical work, uh, and I get a five-star rating from one of the agencies. And in, in no other work that I do do I feel as direct a connection with what is happening on the ground and for the ground uh, on an international basis. Great. Well, thanks so much for your call this morning, Jack. Great. Thanks, sir. I like the on the ground and for the ground. <laughs> So let's tar- turn to the future a little bit and um, bring uh, Sarah Clemens into the conversation. Sarah's staff member with Sustainable Harvest International. And um, up- upcoming events, you're celebrating the 15th um, anniversary of uh, Sustainable Harvest International, and there's a special event coming up in Bar Harbor on Sunday the 19th. Tell us a little bit about what's happening. Well, Ron, we're extremely uh, pleased to have to start our 15th year celebration with an event that features the um, nationally known editor and environmentalist Bill McKibben and songs and music by Emma's Revolution. Both of whom are known to WERU listeners. <laughs> yes. And it will be held on the 19th on a Sunday evening at 6 o'clock at College of Atlantic's Gates Auditorium. And tickets are $10, $5 for seniors, and $5 for uh, students. So pretty affordable. Pretty um, affordable. Um, um, how, how do people find out more about the tickets? Well, they can call me at 669-8254. They can email me. Uh, and, and Flo, why did you choose Bill McKibben, or how did you make that connection? Uh, well, it was uh, interesting. We have a church in Massachusetts 
who uh, supports one of our communities. They, they uh, provide the financial support for our work in the community, and they send a group of volunteers each year uh, to, to volunteer for a week or two. And through the church, I was invited to speak at a member's retirement community, and she invited me to stay over at her home as well. And um, her, her last name was McKibben. And so I said, oh, isn't that a coincidence? You have the same last name as one of my environmental heroes. Um, and she said, oh, no, dear, that's not a coincidence. That's my son. <laughs> <laughs> and so I asked if she might introduce us and um, was just so pleased and honored that um, Bill responded immediately and has always uh, just been very responsive and very supportive about what Sustainable Harvest is doing um, and how that contributes to the, the broader efforts that, that he's focused on of, of stabilizing our climate. Mm. And any sense of what his topic will be when he speaks um, at uh, Gates Auditorium on I, the 19th? I have actually not spoken to uh, him about it because I trust that anything he say will uh, be brilliant and <laughs> very interesting and inspirational. Um, but I'm assuming that it will have something to do with climate change uh, mm. and how sustainable harvests work is uh, helping to stabilize the climate. And Emma's revolution. How did you make that connection? Well, the, uh, Sarah might be able to say uh-huh. better how that part happened. That just came through a friend mm. uh, and a, a staff member from Sustainable Harvest International, and she suggested that we contact them, and we did, and they were thrilled to come. Mm. And I guess they've been, been wanting to come into the area mm. for some time, and so they're excited about coming. Great. So, again, the details, Sarah? So, the details, and I'd like to uh, also speak about our cocktail party, if I mm, could. Great. So, we have a patron-level cocktail party that Michael Boland at Havana Restaurant has been so generous to donate to us, and so patron-level uh, donors. We, could, we, don't, we don't mention the, the numbers, but if, you, okay. if patrons are interested, they right. can contact They can contact you. me, right. and right. then they will have a chance to talk to Flo in person, and mm-hmm. Bill McKibben, mm-hmm. and Pat and Sandy from Emma's Revolution. Great, great. And they can contact me for those okay and so both events are on august the 19th on sunday uh the cocktail party is from 4 30 to 5 30 and the event at coa is at six o'clock great and, and again I'm, your contact number contact number is 669-8254 and that's both for the tickets and both for, for other information for anything and for any information they <laughs> want and it's a I, small office it's a small office and i also know that you have a wonderful website that has that information on it so right sustainable sustainable harvest.org uh and from there you can send messages to us uh, or get more information and i believe sustainable harvest.org backslash mckibben will get you directly to the information about the event great Great. Well, we'll repeat that number at the end of the show. Uh, Flo, you've been honored um, in the last year um, with the Sergeant Shriver Award for Distinguished Humanitarian Service by the National Peace Corps um, Organization Association. Uh, tell us a bit about how that came about. Um, as a Peace Corps member, uh, former Peace Corps member, you must be just delighted with that recognition. Uh, yeah, I, I you know, really can't think of, of a greater Who is Sergeant honor. Shriver? Remind us, oh, uh, Sar- listeners, right. Sergeant Shriver, well, he was many things, mm. um, but uh, foremost in my mind is that he was the founder of, of the Peace Corps. Uh, I believe he was John Kennedy's, JFK's brother-in-law, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so that was part of how he ended up uh, being the person tagged to start up the Peace Corps. But mm. from everything I understand, he was an incredibly energetic uh, and uh, enthusiastic man who uh, did a tremendous amount of work getting the Peace Corps started and off to a good start as well as many other uh, initiatives and it sounds like everybody who knew him just loved him and was very impressed by him so Mm. 
it's an honor to receive something uh, that is named after him and, and also to receive it uh, from uh, my fellow Returned Peace Corps volunteers uh, who, who are people who really know uh, what life is like in, in the countries uh, where we work and um, I think you can uh, are in a good position to to assess uh, uh, whether a program is truly of value or not. So uh, coming from them, it, it means an awful lot to me. Mm. You've also mentioned um, that you're um, beginning to change your your job description, um, and that might have something to do with the second uh, kind of uh, award, and, and that's the uh, being named a Woodrow Wilson Visiting Fellow by the Council of Independent Colleges in Washington. I suppose that that gives you the opportunity to have a, a broader audience. Right. Yes, it, it definitely does. How that works? Uh, well, the the Woodrow Wilson Visiting Fellows Program uh, collects people who have uh, expertise and experience in in different areas, um, not necessarily academic, uh, and then makes them available to independent colleges that that are part of. Um, uh, I forget the name of the uh, associate. It's an association of independent colleges. Right, just I, I don't council. Think, council. Council. Thank you. Yep. Council is the word I was looking for. Yeah. Uh, and so the colleges can look through the, the, this catalog and uh, choose people to come and speak on different subjects and bring uh, maybe a, a more hands-on, less academic pers- perspective uh, to different areas that the students uh, may be looking at or, or the, the faculty and staff and broader community may be looking at. And so this is new for me. I, I don't entirely know uh, what to expect. I know that I'll be spending uh, five or six days at Vassar in October. Uh, which I'm looking forward to, and I, I don't have the details of what they'll be doing with me uh, for all that time. I know at the end I'll be giving the keynote, keynote speech for a conference they're having on food, so I'm mm. looking forward to that. Uh, and uh, then in the spring I'll be going to Merrillhurst College in, in Oregon. And uh, I, again, I don't know the details yet, and it's this is a, a new new opportunity for me, but I imagine it will uh, give me the chance to talk with a lot more people uh, about sustainable harvests work and um, hear their ideas, which uh, I'm sure will be useful to us. And I, I hope we'll spread the word to bring more support in mm-hmm. various ways for, for SHI's uh, work in Central America. You've got lots of stories on your website. Are there any other stories you'd like to tell listeners in terms of, of uh, things that you think have made a difference in, in the way that people um, understand their own community and um, then understand their ecology as well? In some of the countries you're working in, yeah, you know, well, I, I think that the, that the change of consciousness that happens with the farmers working with is, is really at the heart of why sustainable harvests program is successful and and why it's long lasting. Um, so it the the techniques uh, that we teach are, are all the tools, but what really matters, I think, is, is a, the change in consciousness where the people come to feel that they uh, do have control over their destinies and they can improve. Um, their standard of living and they can do so in their own communities um, uh, and that they can have an impact on, on the on the world as, as a whole. And, uh, there's a, a couple different farmers that especially come to mind when I think about that and well and we can add Demetrio to the list because mm, I think he spoke sure. to that um, a little bit uh, t- today as well but I often think about Doña Briseida, a, a woman in Panama working with us, who when I asked her 
what the best thing she'd accomplished with our program was, said that she thought the best thing was that she felt like an important woman now, and she used to feel like she had no value in the world, not even to her own children, because she couldn't even feed them three meals a day. But now she feels important to her family because she's turned their farm around so it supports the family. Her husband's been able to quit his job and come home and work on the farm with them so the family's together again. She feels important to her community because she's protecting the watershed for a spring that provides water to the community. And she feels she's important to the planet because she's stabilizing the climate, providing us with our oxygen, stopping the siltation of the coral reefs uh, where uh, we get many of our fish from. And so she feels like, and, and she is, an important woman mm-hmm. uh, for our whole planet. And uh, and she used to feel like she had no value in the world. And, and I think it's that sort of change of consciousness that really makes SHI's program successful long-term, and and that's what we're looking for. Mm, I think we have time for one more short phone call. Go ahead with your question or comment. Give us your first name and where you're calling from, please. Hi, this is Michael from Stonington. I'm I'm actually in my car, but I was um, just wondering why you hadn't mentioned the wonderful program you had. Uh, Maybe you don't have it anymore, but our son went to Panama with other members of his Spanish class and Mm -hmm. uh, lived with these people that you help and had just a fabulous, um, life-changing experience, uh, one that he said he'll never forget, came back with, um, you know, incredible memories, photographs, and um, my wife and I were just very impressed with uh, with everything that happened. So, well, thanks yeah. for your call this morning. Yes, and thank you so much for bringing that up. I'm afraid one hour is never enough to uh, talk about all the different pieces that we would like to, but that's our Smaller World program, and I'm really glad you gave this opportunity to mention that, that, um, that we still uh, do have our Smaller World program where we offer groups from the U.S. the opportunity to go down and spend usually a week or two uh, in one of the countries where we work, spending most of that time in one of the communities, uh, getting to know the people, uh, and usually participating in volunteer work, um, helping when there's a lot of trees to be planted or when there's uh, some rice paddies to be dug or something like that, wood conserving stuff to be built. Some of the uh, trips are much more rustic with very basic accommodations and more hard work. Some of them uh, for people who don't want quite so much of that but want the cultural experience, we uh, give them the chance to stay in a comfortable uh, eco-resort um, and then go out during the day to the communities and, and get to know the people and see the work they're doing. And uh, as, as Michael said, it's a life-changing experience, I think, for most of the people who uh, from the U.S. who go on one of these trips with us and the farmers and the families in Central America who host the groups also uh, just feel so happy and so honored that we want to leave our comfortable lives here in the U.S. to go to their communities to see what they're doing and that we feel that what they're doing is important enough to mm-hmm. spend our vacation that way. And, and so it's, it's a, a, a program that I, I think is of great benefit both for the people who take the trips and for the, the families working with us in Central America. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for being with us this morning. Uh, um, it feels to me as though the work that you're doing um, needs to be replicated the world over and Maine is a good place to, for that to, to start in terms of, of uh, making people aware that they can uh, take charge of their lives mm-hmm. and um, that they can learn about the techniques that they need to do that. But then there's this consciousness change. Yep. Really impressive. Really impressive. So uh, we've come to that time when I want to remind you, oh, oh, we need to give the, the phone number for Sarah one more time in case people want to know about Bill McKibben and the uh, opportunity on, on Sunday, uh, August 6th. 19th, August 19th, Sunday, I mean, 669-8254. Great. Call Sarah. 
and, and, and visit the website for Sustainable Harvest International. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. I hope that you'll support this station as we begin our uh, uh, fun drive, uh, friend drive, um, that starts tomorrow. So give our phone answers a call when that drive starts. And join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks to our, again to our guests in the studio, Florence Reed and uh, Sarah Clemens of Sustainable Harvest International, and they brought to us Demetrio, a farmer from Panama. We were glad to have him with us by phone. Thanks to you who listened and called in. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Mm-hmm.